Ashray Journal presents. Welcome to the latest Ashray Journal podcast. I'm your host, Drew Champlin, Ashray Journal editor. On this episode, we will be talking about district energy systems and designing for longevity. My name is Alec Cusick. I am a technical lead within Owens Corning's industrial insulation business. Um, I hold a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering, and I currently sit in on multiple technical committees within ASHRAE, including TC 6.2 on district energy systems. I also sit in on committees within the National Insulation Association, and I'm a Level 1 ITC certified infrared thermographer. And I'm Steve Tradinick. I'm a professional engineer and certified energy manager located outside Chicago. I'm a graduate of Penn State Architectural Engineering Program. I have over 40 years of experience with close to 30 of that in focusing on district energy and large central plant design and operation. I retired from full-time employment January of this year and formed district energy specialists or some sole proprietor. I'm a past member and a member of the Board of Governors of the International Energy Association, IDEA. I'm an ASHRAE fellow, past Minnesota chapter president. Um, I'm a corresponding member of TC 6.1, which is hydronic and steam equipment systems, and TC 6.2, which is district energy. And also I was a co-author of the ASHRAE District Cooling Guide, second edition. Hello, I'm Gary Pettiplace. Uh, I'm the uh, owner and principal in GWA Research. I have uh, three degrees, bachelor's from Northeastern, master's from Dartmouth, and PhD from Stanford. Uh, and my uh, PhD dissertation was actually on optimal design of district heating systems. So uh, and it's something that I've been working on uh, for a long time. I worked for about 33 or four years for the uh, U.S. military, who is a owner and operator of probably the most mileage of these very piping systems in the United States with 6,000 miles of systems in place. So I did a lot of research for them. And since 2007, I've been operating my own company, uh, doing research uh, investigations and expert witness work for interests in the field of district heating and cooling. Member of TC 6.2 for a long time, uh, along with Steve, uh, authors of the latest district cooling guide and also the district heating guide. All right. Well, we'll just jump right into this and get to the basics. First off, what is a district energy system and what are the major components for a district energy system? There's really three major components. It is a system to start with that uh, heats a number of buildings from a single central plant normally. We're seeing some variations on this uh, now, but uh, sometimes multiple central plants as well. They're very popular on universities. Uh, many of the big cities here in the United States have them, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, I could go on. A lot of college campuses, military bases. In Europe, they're uh, even more popular than they are here. And uh, in Denmark, like 55% of the homes actually serve with district heating. So as I started to say, there's three main components to the system. There's a central plant, there's a distribution system, which takes the heated steam or hot water, or for cooling purposes, it would be uh, chilled water, from the central plant out to the consumers, which are individual buildings. 
that's really the nuts and bolts of the system in those three major components. And today, we're really only going to talk about the distribution uh, system part of it. It often is the most expensive part of the proposition. And the only thing I wanted to add to that is there's been a big, almost logarithmic growth in the Middle East, which is sort of where the ASHRAE District Cooling Guide was focused on sort of the audience for that document. They have extremely large systems over there with extremely high cooling demands as well. That leads me into my next question. Where are the district energy systems more prevalent? Well, a bunch of those uh, applications that I spoke of, military bases, university campuses, is generally where the loads are dense and high. Uh, that's the most favorable condition. So that's why they exist and, and flourish in the downtown areas of places like New York City and Boston and Detroit, and et cetera. And as Steve said, big cooling systems in the Middle East, in Europe, big district heating systems, most uh, major cities. And as I said, Denmark, you know, it's a giant network there. So that's the applications historically. We're starting to see changes now that are being driven by trying to decarbonize the, the building heating and cooling industry and or methods. And the only thing I can add to that is, as Gary mentioned, a lot of the larger systems or older systems are with a common system owner that also is the, the customer base, if you will. So United States government uh, on military bases, Department of Energy Labs, and similarly, the college and, and university, it has a lot of economies of scale and maintenance and operations savings over having plants in each individual building. What is the current state of the art of district energy right now? We're seeing a, a lot of uh, the effort going into decarbonization. And as the Scandinavians sort of define things, the fifth generation or ambient loops where you would have a, a common loop. Uh, as a heat sink source, and each building would have its own heat pump, and you would um, circulate this heat source throughout a campus or city, and uh, each building's or customer's heat pump would either add or take heat from the loop. As I say, that's what's called 5G or fifth generation, not to be confused with 5G of mobile service. Fourth generation for district heating is is definitely lower temperature but it's still within a, a normal temperature range. Um, a lot of these temperatures and specifics are, are outlined in either the ASHRAE uh, District Heating Guide or the ASHRAE Handbook Chapter in Systems on District Heating and Cooling. I think that's good. And uh, the only thing I would add uh, to what Steve said is uh, one of the reasons that these can help in decarbonization is uh, sharing of loads and that, uh, uh, you know, so that the simultaneous heating and cooling that's going on, these ambient temperature loop systems that can uh, accommodate heat pumps, either dumping to them or taking from them. Uh, that is uh, one of the reasons why they're seeing increased emphasis. There is other things also, like they're able to take advantage of sources of heat or heat sinks that would be hard for individual buildings, like, for instance, data centers or mine water or, you know, seawater even, the seawater system built and operating in uh, Europe. And when I say seawater, they're not circulating seawater, they're using it as a heat source or heat sink. Yeah, and the, the sources are di- very diverse, as Gary said, where we have a lot more mature systems out in Europe. And some of the heat 
sources to the loop or even like crematoriums uh, as odd examples, but they'll, they'll grab any BTU they, they can and uh, add it to the, the distribution loop. The only thing I wanted to add to that would be the reason why you don't see it everywhere is that it's extremely capital intensive to put the system in. And as Gary you know, said, the, the distribution system is, is a big portion of that expense. So having a dense load distribution or dense load to the area uh, reduces the cost of the distribution system and uh, makes things a lot more competitive. And, and typically, as you see in the, the ASHRAE guide in the ASHRAE handbook chapter, there's an example on how to evaluate a self-generated heating or cooling system to a district cooling offer or contract. And there's just a lot of components that goes into to that analysis. And I think that's one of the reasons why you don't see it everywhere is that you know, people have this perception that it's going to cost more. And then once you sign a contract, you're sort of subservient to the district energy provider. And to be honest with you, the, the analysis now sees that I have done, um, it's basically a wash or a, it's a benefit of connecting to a district energy system over the contract of the system, especially when you consider the capital outlay of the plant that you would have to have and the maintenance and operations of that. So it's not just energy costs. It's everything that goes in with that. That explains a lot why you see them applied where you do is people historically that have a longer time frame for the life cycle costs like university campuses, they're not necessarily looking for a 10-year payback. To them, you know, 100 years is, uh, is their time scale. So it's, it's people like the military and them. And in big cities where there's enough load so that consumers can come and go but there's going to be enough load there. And then the reason in Europe that you see it, it's better energy-wise, and they tend to take a long-term view on investments, especially in the Scandinavian countries. Moving right along, guys, what are the specific challenges in direct buried tunnel and vaulted applications? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to get your guys' perspective on this. Uh, Being an insulation guy, I'm dealing with these pipes, you know, after they're in place and we got to put the insulation system together. Uh, There are some unique challenges that we see that underground systems do have to experience. Um, In direct buried scenarios, you need to consider all the load that's going to be subject to your piping and the insulation on said piping. Um, That's a combination of the soil backfill load after they dig the hole, put the piping in and put all the soil back on top of it. That's going to apply some compressive forces to that piping system. But that also has to incorporate the live load of whatever is going to be on the surface of the ground above that system. So your insulation needs to withstand the soil being loaded back on top of it, as well as any sort of roadways, foot traffic, vehicles that might be present on a road that's passing along your piping systems overhead. So you definitely need to make sure your insulation system has the compressive strength to mechanically be durable enough throughout the life of the district energy system. Hydrostatic pressure with any groundwater present is also going to be something to consider. Moisture is widely regarded as one of insulation's biggest enemies. Insulations that can become saturated with water are very less thermally efficient. So if you're installing a direct buried system in a geographic area of high water table, you need to make sure the insulation material as well as the system as a whole can withstand water ingress from any sort of soil water that's just going to be present throughout the life of the system. 
For that reason, low permeability insulations, as well as the selection of proper accessory materials, whether that be sealants and jacketings, those can all go a long way uh, when designed properly to make sure that water stays out and is not affecting your insulation's R value throughout the life of the system. And one other thing I'd like to point out right off the bat is soil itself isn't the best insulator. So if you have an instance where you have an insulation failure and you've got steam or hot water lines that are traveling congruently or nearby to your chilled water lines, if your insulation's not up to snuff, you could actually have heat that's escaping from your hot water or steam line and traveling directly into your adjacent chilled water line. And then all of a sudden you're asking, how come you're not getting the cooling effect that you desire for all the buildings you're trying to cool? So insulation, there's a lot to be considered, a lot of unique challenges when designing in an underground scenario. But that's why we like to work to make sure the system is going to be closed off from outside water and really be able to resist becoming compromised throughout the life of the district energy system. There's a lot of approaches that have been uh, made in order to do just what Alex says, to try to keep the water away from the insulation. And so, you know, one of the systems that was used very early on was steam tunnels, and they've actually put tunnels, some of them big enough to walk through uh, and put the system inside of there. That's an expensive type of construction. So other alternatives were developed, trenches and and then direct uh, burial solutions. But it comes down to what Alex said, you've got to keep the water away from the insulation. And so if you look in the ASHRAE handbook, chapter 12 in the systems volume, systems equipment, I guess they call it, or the district heating and district cooling guides that ASHRAE published, you'll see all of the ways of doing this that have been reasonably successful, some more than others. And they all have that focus, uh, more or less, is to try to keep the groundwater away from the insulation. It's not a, The ground is not a favorable place other than you can't see it. Uh, and that turns out to be one of the unfavorable things. And soil, as Alex said, is not a very good insulator in most cases. And so don't fall into the trap of thinking if you bury the line deeply because you got a lot of soil on it, you've insulated it. Um, what you've done is made it, it incredibly hard to do any kind of uh, service to increase the cost of construction, et cetera, et cetera. And made it put it in an environment where it's more susceptible to groundwater because of the hydrostatic head. So that's my two cents on that. That's a, you know, the distribution part of the uh, system requires some respect. It's not like making a water line or a sewer line. It's, uh, you know, a much different, more challenging task. And the only thing I want to add to that would be there's the challenges is, is cost and again, longevity, but I mean, direct berry is probably the, the cheapest installation that you, you can do. Uh, there's pre-insulated products for that sort of mitigate any type of joint failure or seams that you would have because you can sort of do it stick built and uh, apply insulation and put a jacket on it. Tunnels come in different variations. Gary mentioned the guides have this shallow tunnels, deep tunnel, walkable tunnels, and they all come their expenses. I think one of the things that I've seen is there's a shallow trench or shallow tunnel where the lid of the culvert or tunnel is actually like a sidewalk. And if it's adjacency to either streets or de-icing, it's putting a lot of salt and freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw. You have a lot of moisture and intrusion into the tunnel that can corrode 
um, the pipe supports and any bare metal, uh, e even the, the concrete itself, any rebar in it. So there's, there's a lot of concern in, on, uh, not only the design, but it's the, you know, the maintenance of it and, uh, trying to be sensible to not putting a lot of salt or locating the trench or the tunnel to where it's not going to have a lot of the sort of ancillary damage. That's a great call out, Steve. And, uh, one thing I'd like to mention just from my observations is, uh, oftentimes these tunnels can be designed with the best intentions in mind and thought of as, as a suitable alternative to direct buried systems. However, uh, regardless as to how well we engineer things and how well our thoughts are, uh, oftentimes these tunnels throughout enough years and cycle throughout the salt exposure that Steve just mentioned, we've seen tunnels that weren't intended to get exposed to water, uh, experience flooding events, you know, if rainwater from the soil finds its way in. So just because you have a tunnel that's closed off from the outside soil doesn't mean it's 100% guaranteed to not see some sort of water exposure at some point down the road. So the insulation system still should be just as high of a priority in that instance. Just because you have a tunnel doesn't get you off scot-free uh, as much as we'd like to think it does. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, if you look inside of the ASHRAE design guides that I mentioned in the handbook chapter, We'll tell you to design the system to expect that it's going to get wet at some point during its lifetime. You shouldn't allow that condition to go on, obviously, but you got to expect it and be able to deal with it. And that said, I have been in tunnels that are 100 years old and still functioning. So, you know, that's, but uh, they're costly, as, as Steve points out. But uh, much like a tunnel, these systems also have what we call vaults or manholes. And even direct buried systems will have these, uh, they're places where we can, um, you know, trap the condensate and drain it out of the system, have valves and things like that. And so these are buried and they're subject to the same environment. So you need to pay attention to the design of those. And uh, again, the, the ASHRAE documents help you with that, it suggested designs and details and stuff. So you got to have, you got to allow for adequate drainage of the manholes and plan on them getting flooded, not just once in a lifetime, probably more than once. So some pumps and or positive drainage of other types have to be included. And it turns out that in direct buried systems, sometimes the manholes can serve as the Achilles heel of the system, allowing access of water through the manhole into the direct buried portions of the system. interesting stuff guys with all that being said how can decisions made at the design stage support longevity of district energy systems i think for the longevity we've mentioned expense so district energy systems typically don't really spare any expense and they, they put in high quality materials so they do last longer but you need robust equipment adequate space for expansion and that's also expands to the the piping itself that expect growth. So you need some robustness and resiliency in the design of the system. You're typically using premium efficient equipment. Uh, one of the tricks I like to do is to oversize the cooling towers with a higher degree wet bulb that uh, responds to some climate resiliency for sort of the 
global climate change is sort of getting warmer as well as the wet bulb. Uh, it initially oversizes the cooling towers where they're extremely efficient, have a very close approach to the wet bulb in the initial years, and it builds in a little bit of scaling factor in it. So they'll slowly lose the capacity before you have to re replace the fill, but oversizing things to make it more efficient and last longer, knowing that this is going to be I mean, typical contracts are 20 to 25 years, but the systems themselves are out there, you know, 50 plus years. And that includes a distribution system. So it's expensive initially. You just don't want to have to continually expend money for something that you cheapened up on uh, initially. Uh, another item is distribution loops. And just like the city water grid or electric grid, you have multiple points of access or service to a, a customer. I know. It's probably a future topic, but the initial operation of the system, I mean, let's just say you design a, a 30,000 ton plant, you're not going to have 30,000 tons of initial load. It may only be 1,000, 2,000 or, or less. So one lesson that I had learned that was actually an er error or an omission on my part was thinking that small that on a 30,000 ton system, the first customer might be 500 tons. We decided not to insulate the chilled water supply piping on a 30-inch main because it was it was deep enough and we'd have the adequate velocity in the piping system to, you know, keep the, the ground cool, if you will, uh, and not have a lot of heat loss. But we didn't anticipate having, you know, initial customer being, you know, 500 tons at the remote part of the system with a huge pipe with a minimum flow. And they were a cold air distribution system, so they needed 38-degree water. Uh, to their building. And we actually had to open up some bypass valves to keep the water cold there for the, the first year of operation, just to keep them satisfied. And I think if insulating that supply pipe would have, would have helped uh, that type of 2020 hindsight <laughs> would have helped quite a bit. But again, it was, you know, we decided to cheapen up just a little bit. And uh, there was a success story that the customer was happy, but it was a little bit of a scramble with the realization that, you know, we should probably insulate that pipe. I mean, the insulation is not something that you you want to uh, you know try to uh, uh, cheap out on for that reason because it protects you also against uh, you know things like inflation of fuel costs and stuff that you might not have realized and and nobody is ever going to complain uh, to you that you're not losing enough heat or not gaining enough heat. It's always going to be the other round, so it's better not to uh, do that. To try to get by with too little insulation in the first instance. And uh, one point I would like to make is I've, I've already talked about the ASHRAE guides and the, the, the ASHRAE handbook chapter. I think that you should look in there if you haven't dealt with one of these things, because we tell you how to design the insulation system, how to do all the calculations. We got soil properties, you know, we always recommend that you get the insulation properties right from the insulation manufacturer that you, whose insulation you're going to use. But we got typical properties inside there. We even have properties for obsolete insulations in case you should want to, you know, do some calculations on some system that's uh, made of asbestos and uh, manganese. <laughs> so it's all in there in the calculational methods. And there's an example for everything. And a district cooling guide is an example for what Steve just mentioned, a service line that has a small connected load in the beginning, but is... Uh, size for the built out load so that's a special case but you've got to make sure that you allow for it so it's a it's a special case of thermal design of the system and you've got to actually remember to design your plant to include those loads 
that are on from the distribution system. Yeah, that was a great story, Steve. And it's funny to hear a real life scenario of of just this, because oftentimes we see projects where the installation from a total cost perspective might be one or two percent of all the other costs associated with building a facility or a project. So it becomes an afterthought for a lot of people from an engineering perspective, but you're not going to find any component of the whole facility design that's going to yield a better return on your investment often than the insulation itself. So definitely to echo both Steve and Gary, not something to consider an afterthought until it's too late. So district energy systems are often located in environments subject to significant shifts in load, such as campus-based systems. What impact does load variation have on a system? For one thing, uh, when you're building one of these systems, you should start off with a good master plan. And even if you're operating one of these systems, if you don't have a master plan uh, for your campus or your, you know, whatever it is, is covering, you know, then you should get one. And if you look inside of the district heating and cooling guides, they'll tell you how to make one of those master plans, what's important to include. But the best laid plans, uh, you know, are going to change. And so if you do what Steve says and you provide some extra cushion, and then also distribution systems, because they're expensive, they tend to be laid out in tree-like structures, you know, with branches out to serve each one of the consumers. But when you're doing it, look for possibilities to loop the system, to interconnect some of the, the branches so that a customer can be served from basically two different directions. It'll help you deal with that potential change in load. And it's a it's a lot easier to build a little interconnect between two branches than it is to dig up something so you can upsize a pipe, especially in a you know urban or uh, you know really highly developed like New York City or uh, environment. Yeah, I think a lot of the noodle work that you do up front helps you in the in the long work run. So it's it's trying to understand the low profile of the system and what comes on first how the system grows and the master plan, as Gary said, should should assist with that. So if you have uh, a system that's going to grow slowly, the, your increments of heating or cooling um, have to have adequate turndown for the shoulder seasons or off-peak seasons. So having a pony chiller or pony boiler initially is is probably smart to turn down the loads. And on the other hand, morning warm-up, or if you have a computer, high-performance uh, high computing, which have extremely rapid warm-ups or cool-downs, um, having some sort of thermal storage system in the system will assist with that. Or having multiple units of production active and just sort of limping along, knowing that something's going to um, spike in, in the short term is having that rolling sort of inventory of, of generation. And some systems are big enough that the volume of water in the pipe for hydronic systems actually acts as a, a thermal storage tank. There's, a, there's just enough energy stored in there for the either a spike load or morning cool down or warm up uh, with that, that assist. So that's, that's the benefit of a big system. And the, the systems I was talking about uh, in Denmark, I mean, all of Copenhagen and the surrounding areas are hooked into, uh, you know, a giant interconnected system and they do, especially for uh, Copenhagen, just exactly what Steve was talking about. For the Monday morning warm-up, they're charging the network ahead of time. So if they normally run it, uh, you know, at a supply temperature of 200 or 220 F, something like that, they're going to throw an extra 10 degrees or maybe more inside of there. So when they get hit with that slugger load, 
when everybody opens their office on Monday morning, they're ready for it. And that hot water has got an awful lot of thermal capacity of thermal inertia in it. Well, what impact can moisture have on the insulation or energy efficiency of a district energy system? As I quickly mentioned earlier, moisture is commonly referred to as one of insulation's biggest enemies in any application. Uh, The way most insulations on the market actually work is by suspending pockets of air amongst some sort of solid medium. So you kind of break up the convection that heat can take through a gas and conduction that it takes through a solid and kind of break it up into multiple individual pockets of air that the heat has to travel through. Now, if you replace that air that's suspended in, let's say, the thickness of fiberglass or calcium silicate or any other type of insulation product, that insulation's efficiency will drop because water is a very very much a better conductor of heat than air is. So your goal with any insulation system should be to maintain the integrity of those air pockets that are suspended within the thickness of the insulation, uh, however that may be. For a lot of insulation products, that comes down to the accessories that you use on the system as a whole. Uh, In that case, you want to make sure you're sealing all terminations, entry points into manholes, like Gary was talking about earlier, being a common fail point. If you're not sealing the ends of those pipes down, that's an entry place where water could uh, squeeze its way in. You want to make sure joint sealant is used uh, between segments of insulation. We recommend cellular glass for a lot of high water table underground scenarios just because we know the system is going to be exposed to so much constant hydrostatic pressure from water. In that case, it's a zero permeability insulation. So at the very least, you know the R value is being maintained throughout the life of the system. But generally speaking, keeping water out should be your number one goal to maintaining your thermal resistance of an insulation system throughout its lifetime. And I would just add to that, furthermore, ASHRAE uh, did research on the impacts of uh, moisture on the common insulation systems used in district energy systems. And so that's published in the handbook, Chapter 12, the the Systems uh, and Equipment Volume. Uh, and also in uh, district heating and cooling guides, I believe that all that uh, research is is there. It can give you some idea of what the impacts are. And for instance, with mineral wool, the factor I happen to remember that one, it could be 50 times uh, increase in your heat transfers for saturated mineral wool. So <laughs> you want to keep it dry. Exactly. And it doesn't take much water to get in to have that sort of effect. Yeah, there's kind of seasonal things too, is where you know, steam or hot water, you may have the opportunity to dry it out eventually, but chilled water, you don't have that opportunity. Once it's wet, it's probably not going to dry out, especially if it runs all year long. In fact, what it's going to do is try to, you know, draw more moisture in. So, you know, the moisture drive, uh, you know, is away from the heated pipe, but it's towards a a, uh, chilled pipe or any pipe that's below the, it's environmental temperature. Yeah. So that chilled water is particularly difficult. That's a great point. And I'd like to call out the presence of tunnels. Tunnels often put steam pipes and chilled water pipes in very close proximity where they have to share one airspace. Now, if you use an insulation system that wasn't thought out too well and both insulations become compromised, you could have an instance where your steam pipe is heating up and baking that the airspace in that tunnel and making a very harsh, high temperature, potentially high humidity environment that just wants to drive all that vapor towards that cold pipe, like Gary said. So especially when you have steam and chilled water pipes in close proximity, 
keeping those insulation systems intact is very much of your best interest. If things go awry, the steam and chilled water lines can play not so nicely together when they're that close. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the only good side to that story is that if you have a tunnel that's a walkthrough tunnel, you can replace the insulation or upgrade the insulation, uh, you know, so you're not uh, as locked in. That's another valuable part of that type of construction, but it is very expensive. Yeah, Alec can probably add to this comment, but uh, a lot of the, I call it a pro tip uh, for cooling systems is you paint the pipe outside of the pipe before you insulate it, just to add a little bit of barrier because there's some insulations that once they're wet, they form an acid that will corrode from the outside in. And that's like the opposite way you want your pipe to age is you want it from the inside out. Yes. Uh, coatings are very common in the insulation industry. Uh, they can help a ton with CUI type of concerns, CUI being corrosion underneath insulation. There's a lot of good insulation materials on the market. Cellular glass being one type of material, since the material itself is zero perm, you're a little less concerned with moisture drive getting into the insulation thickness itself. But even in that case, you definitely need to look at all the joints between segments of insulation. Just because you have a low perm or a zero perm material doesn't mean there's no entryways for water to get in towards that pipe surface. You need to make sure that the right joint sealant is being used between segments of insulation. Anytime you have a termination, a protrusion coming out of the pipe for like a pipe support or a hanger, those are all common failure points where they can present avenues for moisture to get in. So yes, there's a lot to consider in designing a complete zero perm insulation system, but it's well worth it at the end of the day. Given recent extreme flooding events in the United States, what factors should be considered to protect against water intrusion and the risk that it poses to buried pipes? I guess the way I would start is by saying that you need to go back and look at, if you designed your system as we would recommend to be able to handle that kind of event, you know, at least periodically, well, if it's going to happen more often, then beef up your system a little bit. So make sure that all your drainage things are working properly, that you've got, uh, usually we would recommend duplex uh, sump pumps in a manhole, for instance, not just one, but two. Uh, make sure that you're going into the manholes and cleaning debris out of the manholes that could clog the pump inlets or other forms of drainage that you have in the manhole. So I think that would be the first thing I do would, would be start to beef up the things that I, that I already had in my design or should have had in my design. The only thing I can add to that is sort of the weakness in hydronic or even steam systems is the field joint for pre-insulated piping systems or direct bird. And the, to have a double heat shrink wrap sort of belt and suspenders to provide a little bit more protection on that joint. It's not that much of an expense to get a little bit more sleep at night factor for longevity of systems. That's a great call out. And there's some nuance to the best practices of installing said jacketings. So I know for our systems that we recommend, uh, we have some jacketings that are self-sealed. They can be applied just with pressure by a contractor in the field. Uh, there are also ones that are torch applied where you actually have to heat up, uh, melt a bitumen-based membrane 
Um, in those instances, it can actually be advantageous, counterintuitive to some people, but advantageous to have the shiplap of the jacketing actually facing upwards so that as you're blowtorching the asphalt jacketing, it lets it melt and fall back into itself to create a really efficient seal throughout the life of the system. There's some tricks of the trade there. Um, but yes, jacketing at joints, definitely something we recommend in underground scenarios just because of how much moisture is really going to be present quite frequently. Yeah, yeah, pay attention to what the manufacturer is recommending to you and uh, follow it in the installation. Well, are there any visible symptoms to look for that would indicate a problem with the insulation system within piping systems? That's a good question. There, Oftentimes, it can be comical how evident it can really be if you have a problem with insulation. If it's a direct buried system, uh, we've seen examples where in the wintertime, snow's falling on the ground and there's a patch of green grass with melted snow all along the surface of it in a straight line. And to those that are walking on the surface, they might not know what it is, but to a designer of a district energy system, that might mean your steam system's insulation is no good no more because it's got a lot of heat melting the snow above it. So things like that can be quite apparent. Oftentimes, it's not as easy to spot. In instances where insulation extends to above ground, uh, you want to make sure there's no visible signs of mold, mildew, dripping water from any sort of exposed piping, because that could also be a telltale sign that maybe on a chilled water system, the insulation's not achieving its thermal resistance that it should. So sometimes insulation can be finicky. Oftentimes it's hidden beneath jacketings, but there are some telltale signs that can go off as sort of a early alarm that is something to look into. Yeah, conversely, the summertime on that same steam or hot water line that, that melts the snow, in the summertime, there's the burned out grass. You can see it season, seasonally long and the snow is sort of like mother nature's infrared camera that, you know, you can use an, an IR camera to try to detect whether some either steam leaks or hydronic leaks, either thermally or just true, true leaks. And then Gary, I, th I think you're probably a little bit more in tune to some of the hydronic systems and steam systems on the pre-insulated product have some integral leak detection systems. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's several systems that are in use, and it, uh, I, I don't want to get into the scope of the systems as the technology gets a little bit complicated. But uh, there are several systems, some that are suitable for use with systems such as conduits that have air spaces and others that are buried in the, uh, the insulation and are constantly monitoring to see if the insulation is picking up moisture. So those types of systems can be installed originally and, uh, and help you monitor it. And Steve mentioned infrared survey is a great tool and you can do aerial uh, surveys. And now actually they're doing them via drone. So that really cuts down the cost of an infrared survey. And, and from the air, you can get a big picture of what your situation is. And if you do have areas of, of uh, significant heat uh, leakage, but if you want to follow up from the ground, you can actually learn more. And there's even methods that have been used to uh, predict what the heat loss is based on the signature of the temperature signature at the ground surface. And so the 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 methods that, that Alec and Steve mentioned about the burnt grass and the and the melting snow, yeah, those are the two most common ones. And I'll just tell you that in uh, Fort Wainwright, Alaska, where I was working, they had a tunnel system there, and I was there in uh, April because it's such a cold climate, there was still snow on the ground. 
and children were playing baseball on top of the utilidor because it had melted such a wide uh, swath of snow <laughs> that, uh, that it was a little bit of a narrow field, but it was very deep. So, uh, and that's one of those tunnel systems that unfortunately, you know, had insulation that was not very good. It was old asbestos-based stuff, which made it difficult to get rid of and et cetera, et cetera. They did not have chill water in there, fortunately enough. Well, Gary, I know you've mentioned some ASHRAE material throughout the podcast where listeners can refer to, but is there anything you wanted to add to that or, or mention again, just some uh, just some key points of reading where if people wanted to go check some references or anything like that? Yeah, let me uh, just kind of try to give a little bit more proper recitation of their titles and such. And so in the ASHRAE handbooks, most everybody's ASHRAE member is familiar with those because they get one every year. In the systems and equipment volume, which the most recent one would be 2020. So that would be the most uh, recent version of that. And it's chapter 12. And I think it's called District Energy Systems. Is that right, Steve? Uh, district Heating and Cooling, if I, if I call it. Yeah, the, T, the TC is District Energy. Yeah, Not to be confused. Yeah, which is but. TC 6.2, by the way. And so if you really want to get in depth uh, uh, to this topic, uh, come to some of those meetings and you'll see Steve and I there uh, now and then, either live or virtual. And then there's two handbooks that were written uh, by ASHRAE to provide additional detail beyond what was in the, the actual ASHRAE handbook chapter. And so there's a district heating guide is what it's called. And that was published first in 2013. At the same time in 2013, there was a district cooling guide published. And those are called, you know, the district heating guide and the district cooling guide. And if you look in the ASHRAE bookstore, you'll find them. The district cooling guide was updated in 2019. And there was also an additional publication that, that came with it that was, um, has a kind of a long title. It's, it's something like Guide for Building Owners for Building Served with District Cooling. Maybe Steve maybe can help me with the title. But basically what it does is tells you if you have a system a district cooling system, and you want to design a building to attach to it, read what this says. Because uh, anybody that knows district cooling systems will know that Delta T is a big problem. Well, it's controlled from the building and no place out. So yeah, we, we try to tell people how to design the system inside the building in that particular publication. Well, Alec, Gary, and Steve, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise on this ASHRAE Journal podcast episode. Yeah, thanks so much. This was exciting to be a part of. You're welcome. Yep. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I'm Drew Champlin, ASHRAE Journal Editor. Thank you so much for listening. The ASHRAE Journal podcast team is editor Drew Champlin, managing editor Kelly Barraza, producer and associate editor Chad Jones, assistant editor Caitlin Beish, Associate Editor, Tani Polevsky, Creative Designer, Teresa Carboni, and Technical Editor, Rebecca Matasovsky. Copyright Ashray. The views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals only and not of Ashray, its sponsors, or advertisers. Please refer to ashray.org forward slash podcast for the full disclaimer. <laughs>